Welcome to the Bedford Alliance Church Bible Reading Plan Podcast. I'm Luke Cugino, your discipleship pastor and host. This podcast follows along with our church-wide reading plan, which walks you through the entire New Testament and gives you an overview of the Old Testament. Join us as we dive into God's life-changing Word together. I want to welcome you to our Bedford Lions Church podcast. My name is Ryan, my partner in crime, Luke. He's not here today, so I guess I'm going to be doing this alone. Today in this podcast, I'm going to be looking at some theological terms. Now, since we are going through the book of Romans, I do feel it is fitting because Romans is a foundational book on salvation. It's challenged many people's lives. It's transformed many people's lives. Theologians and thinkers have really studied this book and It was the book, Romans was the book that spoke to Martin Luther that actually launched the Protestant Reformation. So when dealing with theology, you're going to find that there are two main camps on the doctrine of salvation. They are known as Calvinism and Arminianism. They tackle the difficult questions such as foreknowledge, predestination, election, atonement, the nature of the human heart, the depravity of the human heart. Now, Calvinism is based on the theological belief of the reformer, John Calvin. Now, John Calvin lived from 1509 to 1564. He was one of the main leaders of the Reformation. So to speak of Calvinism is to speak of the Reformed faith. The term Reformed is today basically synonymous with Calvinism. Now, Calvin's theology centers on the sovereignty of God, and all other doctrines flow from this premise. So his, again, his main thought is the sovereignty of God. Now, much of Calvin's ministry was in Geneva, Switzerland, and he published the famous Institutes. Eventually, Calvin's material was summed up as the five points of Calvinism known as the TULIP. The five concepts are arranged logically, and they're really they're contingent upon each other. Now, Arminianism is based on the views of the Dutch theologian Jacob Arminius. Now, he lived from 1560 to 1609. Arminius started out as a strict Calvinist. He even studied under Calvin's son-in-law, Biza, but later as a pastor in Amsterdam. His studies on the Book of Romans led him to doubt and eventually reject many of the Calvinistic doctrines. Now, when we talk about Calvinism in the five points, and you hear, might hear the word tulip, it stands for T, total depravity. So for TULIP, the T is total depravity. The U stands for unconditional election. The L, limited atonement. The I, irresistible grace. And P, the perseverance of the saints. Now for T, the total depravity, what Calvin taught is because of the fall, man is unable of himself to savingly believe the gospel. The sinner is dead, blind, deaf to the very things of God. So his heart is desperately corrupt. His will is not free. It is in bondage to evil nature. Therefore, he will not, indeed, he cannot choose good in the spiritual realm. So the U then stands for unconditional election. Now, what Calvin taught was God's choice of certain individuals unto salvation before the foundation of the world rested solely on his own sovereign will. So let me repeat that. 
God's choice of certain individuals onto salvation before the foundation of the world rested solely on his own sovereign will. His choice of particular sinners was not based on any foreseen response or obedience on their part, such as faith or repentance. On the contrary, God gives faith and repentance to each individual whom he selected. Election, therefore, was not determined by or conditioned upon any virtuous quality or act foreseen in man. The L stand for limited atonement. Christ's redeeming work was intended to save the elect only and actually secured salvation for them. All who has, uh, God has elected and died would be saved. The I would stand for irresistible grace. Those whom God elected and Christ died for, God draws to himself through irresistible grace. God makes man willing to come to him. When God calls, man will respond. So it's irresistible. And the P stands for perseverance of the saints. All those who are redeemed by God are eternally saved. Now, some people, you'll hear them talk, will say, well, I'm a two-point Calvinist or I'm a three-point Calvinist, what they're meaning is they agree maybe on two of the statements or three of the statements. Now, this isn't bad, yet true Calvinism, the system flows from the, te- um, the premise of total depravity, and it's really one consistent movement. Now, Arminian disagreed on many of these points. For example, Arminianism believes that Christ died for everyone. The Savior's atonement, however, is effective only for those who believe. Or another example is that by the exercise of free will, believers can turn away or fall away from grace and lose their salvation. Sometimes talking with people today, they ask if you're a Calvinist or a Minion. A lot of times I have found that what they're asking for is, do you believe in eternal security or not? I mean, that's very basic. It's more de- um, it, There's more to it than just that. But people have just different views. Now, just like any belief system, there are, there are varying degrees or at different spectrums. To the extreme, I think to the extreme, both, want, both emphasize one aspect of salvation of God to the hindrance of the other. In an extreme view of Calvinism, it's God decrees everything and there really is no free will. Really, there's not even love. You're either chosen or you're not. On the other extreme view of Arminianism, is what we call open theology, which says that God doesn't know the future, but simply is the master of all probability. In fact, my wife, when she went to college, she took a Bible class for, in, during her, uh, for her bachelor's degree, and actually that's what she was taught. It's called open theology. Now, people ask me all the time which camp I'm in. The reality is I don't think I'm in either of these camps. I don't think you have to be. In fact, the danger is when you study them so deeply that it's hard to see outside that system. So let me just give you some examples of my thoughts. Scholar Dr. Heiser, uh, I just read, did a great blog on the topic of election. I encourage you, if you have a chance, to Google that. The general view on election is that God's sovereign act of choosing some individuals for salvation. So election and salvation are correspondent. So you are elect, so if you are elect, God elects you, then you'll be saved. The problem is, this viewpoint can actually create some difficulties. 
So election finds its roots in the Old Testament. Israel was chosen or was elected by God. I don't think that's, I mean, I don't think people really disagree with that. In fact, in Deuteronomy 4.37, the scripture says, And because he loved your fathers, therefore he chose their descendants after them, and he brought you out of Egypt with his presence, with his mighty power. It was God who chose. It was God who elected Israel. In Deuteronomy 14.2, it says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the people who are on the face of the earth. See, God chose Israel. God elected Israel. Now, Israel was elect. But does that mean everybody of Israel was saved? And I think we'd answer no. There were many people who were elect, meaning they were Israelites, they were Jewish, yet they were not saved. Now, we, we know this. Many Jews in the Old Testament forsook God, they became apostates, and they served Baal. If election and salvation are the same, then we've got a problem. Because God chose individuals who might not serve him or worship him to go to heaven. And I don't think so. So I hope this makes sense. You see that Israel was elect, but not all the Jewish people who were of the elect group were saved. Also, there were Gentiles of the Old Testament, which by definition means they were not of the elect, for they're not of Israel, but they converted and worshiped God. In the sense, we'd say they're believers, they're saved. So election and salvation must be distinct, but they're also related. So what idea, what idea points to is that everyone who is saved was elect, but not all who are elect are saved. So when we look at this, we can see that election and salvation work together, but there's also some distinction. Or let me just show you just another thought out there. Many people ask the question about predestination and foreknowledge. So if God knows that something is going to take place, then it's been predestined. If God knows that you're going to do something tomorrow, he can see it, then it's been predestined to happen. If God foreknows an event, then it's predestined to happen, and at least that, that's the majority view. So predestination speaks of God determining in eternity past whatever comes to pass in history. Foreknowledge gives the idea of God knows beforehand. Again, if God foreknows an event, then it's predestined to happen. That's what most would hold to. But I think it's a little more complicated than that. And I think we can look at Scripture that shows a little bit of a different view. The fact that God knows the future does not mean it's predestined. In 1 Samuel 23, 1 through 14, uh, David is in Kilah. When David, so remember the story. David is on the run. Saul has been hunting him down. And so let me pick up the story here. When David was told, look, the Philistines are fighting against Kilah and are looting the threshing floors. He, talking about David, inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? The Lord answered him, Go, attack the Philistines and save Kilah. But David's men said to him, Here in Judah we are afraid. How much more then if we go to Kilah against the Philistine forces? Once again, David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered him, Go down to Kilah. 
for I am going to give the Philistines into your hand. So David and his men went to Kilah, fought the Philistines, and carried off their livestock. He inflicted heavy losses on the Philistines and saved the people of Kilah. Now Abiathar, son of Ahimelech, had brought the ephod down with him when he fled to David at Kilah. Saul was told that David had gone to Kilah and said, God has delivered him into my hands. For David has imprisoned himself by entering a town with gates and bars. So the idea is when David went into the city, uh, Saul finds this out, and all he has to do then, Saul, is surround the city, and he'll have David. And Saul called up all his forces for battle to go down to Kilah to besiege David and his men. When David learned that Saul was plotting against him, he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod. Now look what he says here. David said, Lord God of Israel, your servant has heard definitely that Saul's plans to come to Kilah and destroy the town on account of me. Will the citizens of Kilah surrender me to him? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? Lord God of Israel, tell your servant. Now look what happens. And the Lord said, he will. Again, David asked, will the citizens of Kilah surrender me and my men to Saul? And the Lord said, they will. So David and his men, about 600 in number, left Kilah and kept moving from place to place. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Kilah, he did not go there. Now there is a point to this. God's foreknowledge of event does not mean that it's predestined. God knew two events that never actually took place. David asked, will Saul come? And God said, yes. Will they surrender me? Will the city surrender me? God says, yes. So God knew what was going to happen on two events, but those events never did take place. So foreknowledge, understanding what will happen, does not necessarily mean predestination, that it will happen. Foreknowledge does not require predestination. God does know all things, both real and possible. Now, it's often taught that what God foreknows must be predestined, but that's not necessarily true. Now, unfortunately, in this podcast, is beyond talking about these topics in depth here, but it shows that there are other ways to look at Scripture without being locked into what I just call a Calvinistic or Arminian train of thought. Maybe some of you here are what we call a Calminian. But I do encourage you to keep reading and to studying. And if you haven't listened to the podcast, uh, last week's podcast on Romans 9, I encourage you to go back and listen to that. I do hope, though, you do have a great day. We'll see you.